0: This Bible study podcast is a presentation of Sunset Presbyterian Church. For more information, log on to our website at www.sunsetpres.org. Thank you, Kimberly. How are you guys liking the study this week? Amazing, huh? Um, so for those of you who don't know me, my name is Alyssa Shifra, and um, yeah, I've been loving this study, too. Totally. Last week, we, um, to kind of recap, we started out the book of Acts, and we, um, which starts right after Jesus' resurrection, and we looked at the 40 days that Jesus kept reappearing to his disciples, teaching them and preparing them for, um, for the Great Commission. And we ended with his ascension into heaven and with his words of the Great Commission um, and also his instructions for the disciples to wait for the Holy Spirit to come upon them. So Jesus was telling them, I have this big mission for you, but he doesn't want them to go in their own power. So they're just supposed to sit around, I guess, and pray and wait for the Holy Spirit to come on them and empower them. So before I read the first part of our passage, let's pray quick. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for this um, book of the Bible and um, for the example of the early church. And God, we pray that your Holy Spirit would come right now. um, Quiet our hearts, give us ears to hear, and um, let your Spirit speak. Amen. So our passage starts out in that time when they're waiting. And if you're wondering, like me, how long did they wait? <laughs> Turns out there are 10 days between um, Passover and Pentecost. So, or not 10 days, 50 days, <laughs> 50 days. So if you calculate that out, you've got three days of Jesus being dead till he's raised from the dead. You have 40 days of Jesus meeting with them. That leaves seven days in which they are being told to wait. So we start up in chapter 1. In those days, Peter stood up among the believers, a group numbering about 120, and said, Brothers and sisters, the scriptures had to be fulfilled in which the Holy Spirit spoke long ago through David concerning Judas, who served as guide for those who arrested Jesus. He was one of our number and shared in our ministry. And then he goes on about little details about that. For said Peter, it's written in the book of Psalms, may his place be deserted, let there be no one to dwell in it, and may another take his place of leadership. Therefore, it is necessary to choose one of the men who've been with us the whole time the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with John's baptism to the time when Jesus was taken up from us. For one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they proposed the names of two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, also known as Justice and Matthias. Then they prayed, Lord, you know everyone's heart. Show us which of these two you have chosen to take over this apostolic ministry, which Judas left to go where he belongs. Then they cast lots, and the lot fell to Matthias. So he was added to the eleven apostles. Now I have a little confession. My uh, study materials, my study Bible, didn't really seem to have, think anything was weird about this little mini episode. But to me, it feels a little reflexive, very Peter. It kind of makes sense to me why they're doing this and kind of not. And even though, like I said, none of my studies seem to think that the timing of this was weird, I can't help but think, if it was that important for Judas to be replaced, wouldn't Jesus have said something when he was right there with them? I mean, he was literally physically just there. So I don't quite, you know little question of the timing myself personally. And then secondly, Matthias just kind of seems to disappear from the story after that. So that was just my, like I said, my personal confession about how I reacted to that. But then I started to think about the situation that Peter's in, about the roller coaster of events that he's been through, how you have this big fisherman cooped up inside with nothing to do but pray. <laughs> And because outside the 20, 120, everyone in Jerusalem probably thinks they're crazy or wants them dead. And when I think about the fact that they're waiting for seven days, a week, for something that is unknown, maybe a little scary, longed for, and completely outside their control. You know what it brought to mind for me? It brought to mind when I was pregnant with my eldest son. And he was not born until seven days past my due date. (laughs) And let me tell you, every single day, even though I knew he had to be born, he had to come at some point. There was no ifs, ands, or buts. He was going to be born, but I didn't know when, and I didn't know how, and I didn't know what it was going to be like. And I went pretty crazy. (laughs) So when I think about that, suddenly I have a little bit more sympathy for Peter. But before we move on, I want you to notice that Peter has stopped referring to himself and his friends as disciples. And instead, in this passage, he's beginning to use a new word apostle. In pre Christian literature, the word apostle indicates someone or thing that has been authorized or sent out. Often, in, this, in the instance, it's talking about a fleet or an embassy. Once in a while, a messenger. So we see that Peter's role in his sense of identity has been redefined. Jesus isn't physically there anymore, and the term disciple is a very specific term, right, in Hebrew culture. So he can't quite call himself that anymore. Instead, his identity has been redefined as someone who has been chosen and sent forth on a mission, even if he's not quite sure what that looks like. Now this is easier said than done, right? Right? Because if Jesus is no longer physically there in the eyes of the world, his tomb may be empty, but the last time they saw him, he was still dead. Case closed. So these apostles are being sent out as witnesses to a fairly unexplainable truth. Without any physical proof, who could be expected to believe them? You know, as I thought about this, I realized that sometimes I think we get some funny ideas about faith. We think that because... I mean, all things are possible for God, right? Maybe God expects people to believe patently impossible things with no evidence. We think that that's what faith is. And once I think about it, I go, how is it that we have the nerve to wonder why a person wouldn't accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior based on the word of a nice stranger who knocks on their door? Or a great speech given from a pulpit? Do you regularly adopt the political advice of every nice stranger who knocks on your door? (laughs) Do you listen to the ideas of every single person just because they happen to be talking from a podium? Please don't misunderstand me. God regularly asks his children, people who know him, people who understand who he is, and who have a relationship, a track record of what God is capable of, to believe that what he says is true, even if it seems impossible in our eyes. But God also gave us discernment for a reason. And what we're going to find out is that when God asks people to believe and trust in him over things that he knows are unexplainable to us, God makes the way. One of my favorite psalms is Psalm 77. And this was a, there's a verse that God gave to me in a time of my life. Verse 19 reads, Your road led through the sea, your pathway through the mighty waters, a pathway no one knew was there. And it's talking about God leading the Israelites through the Red Sea to escape from the Egyptians. Now that was something, he was leading them on a path. But five minutes prior, that path didn't exist. That path was unexplainable, even impossible. But that was the path that God chose to lead them through. God often uses impossible things as evidence. So that we know that only God could have done it. And in this case, and Peter has a huge cause for relief if he had only known, God wasn't expecting them to come up with the proof. God was planning for them to become the proof. So let's read on. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each one of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in others' tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven, and when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Persia, and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said they've had too much wine. I remember growing up and celebrating Pentecost as a little girl in church. Now, in my church, everyone was invited to wear red on that Sunday, and there were a lot of banners with doves on them. That's kind of what I remember. And all of this led to me believe that Pentecost was a holiday that Christians had invented to celebrate the birth of the early church. But it turns out that Pentecost was a festival that God invented way back in the time of Moses. So that actually, I've spent my life celebrating a Jewish holiday in a very un-Jewish way. (laughs) So I wanted to go and share with you a little bit of context for that. And we're going to back up a little bit because it turns out if you go back to the Old Testament, God instituted this yearly cycle of three festivals. Two of them are composed of three smaller feasts, but there's three main festival time periods. And the first one is called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. This is a cluster of three closely related feasts, Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits. And it has a focus on redemption and cleansing. Now Passover, most of you probably know, refers back to the time, that the actual Passover events of when God was leading them out of Egypt. And Jesus was crucified on that first feast, Passover, and it turns out he was raised to life three days later on the Feast of fruits, which makes kind of sense because Jesus was the sacrificial lamb of Passover and he became the firstfruits of the grape. Now the second series of festival, that is, um, comes later in summer, and that is the Feast of Harvest, or what we're knowing as Pentecost. Because Luke is writing in Greek, he translates a Hebrew name, which I don't think I can pronounce, into a Greek name, Pentecost, which means 50 days, and it's so named because it happens 50 days after the Passover. Now, this festival was one that celebrated God's abundant provision in three ways. First, the harvest of the crops, because that was kind of the time period that was happening, but secondly, his provision of his word, this is because the festival of Pentecost also coincides with the time that God gave Moses the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. So during the festival of Pentecost, they read the Torah and they remember that, the giving of the Ten Commandments. And lastly, it's about God's abundant provision of his spirit. And so as we learned in our study today, they read the, pa- the passage in Ezekiel that um, has to do with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And as we see in our text, God is not just filling one or two lines of prophecy. He is, you know, amazing and incredible as that is. He's filling, fulfilling the very meaning of Pentecost itself by abundantly providing his spirit, obviously, his word in such a way that guarantees that it is his word, right? Not the disciples, and a harvest, not merely of crops, but of souls. Now, for all the Jews visiting Jerusalem for the festival, clearly something miraculous is happening. And I love the response. What does this mean? And others are scoffing and saying these guys are drunk because, yeah, that's what happens when people get drunk, right? Suddenly they're fluent in Mandarin. (laughs) I don't think so. (laughs) Now, for those who are in the what does this mean category, I think there's three issues at play. Number one, they understand that something or someone has just invaded the scene. Aside from the wind and the fire, they knew that one plus zero does not equal two. The ability to speak their language did not reside in the brains of these Galileans. So God was somehow empowering them. Number two, and this is so so amazing to me, this miracle was personal. For each of the people present, there was a disciple speaking their language. We use that term a lot, don't we? To say someone who gets us, someone who knows us, someone who speaks our language. Literally, these disciples are doing that. And that got their attention because clearly whatever the disciple was saying had to hold a message for them, not that guy, not that girl, not that person over there, but for them. It's as if God himself is pointing straight at them and saying, you, listen, I see you. I know who you are. I know where you come from. And I have a message for you today. And I think that that probably, more than anything, shows us a difference between the people who were saying, what does this mean, and the people who said, nah, they're drunk, Right? Because when God shows up and speaks personally to us, that's not something that we can ignore. Sometimes when people are bystanders, of a, are bystanders of a miracle, you know, they watch someone be miraculously healed, and the doctors go, oh, I can't explain that, but I don't know. I can't explain it. And they, don't, they aren't moved to belief because it's not personal for them. But when you're the person who has that miracle happen for you or for someone that you love, you can't help but say, what does this mean? So what is that message that God had for them personally? Well, the ESV Study Bible puts it so beautifully. The Holy Spirit was empowering the disciples to speak the language of praise. Not just the language of Roman or Latin or, you know, whatever. The language of praise. So many times in Scripture, we find instances where God does something miraculous, and in response to what God has done, someone on the scene breaks out in praise, and Scripture records it. Well, this time it happens, only it's not a solo, it's a symphony. And just like Miriam and Moses and Deborah and David and Isaiah and Mary, the mother of Jesus, when she breaks out into the Magnificat, every other individual person in the history of Israel who could say, On this certain day, the word of the Lord came to me, and I started to sing a song of deliverance and prayers. So what happens next? As we've seen, the Jews who recognize that this is something miraculous ask the question, what does this mean? And Peter himself, filled with the Holy Spirit, is ready and able to explain. As our study notes, the message that Jesus is Lord is not particularly good news to his audience because it means that they have followed God but missed the Messiah. And as Jesus issues the invitation to repent and accept Jesus as their Lord, assuring them that this promise of the Holy Spirit is for them and their children too, the flame of God's presence spreads from person to person and 3,000 people are saved. So as we move forward, I'm going to skip over a lot of that and head to the very end. Um, the fellowship of the believers. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone in who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, this passage, short as it is, is one that Christians love to hold up as a sort of golden age of the church. Everybody gets along, there's no persecution. And as the BibleProject.com video we watched on day one notes, the early church becomes a picture of what God intended the temple to be, a place characterized by God's own love and peace and abundant generosity, a worthy place for God's presence to dwell. We long to be a part of that kind of church, don't we? But as we look at ourselves today, sometimes we get pretty discouraged. We see the lack of love, the lack of unity, the lack of power that characterized the early church, and we wonder, what happened? What went wrong? Our study this week put a lot of emphasis on growing deeper as women of prayer and women who know God's word. And to that, I say, amen, right? There are absolutely, these are key areas where God deepens and grows us as women of faith, and that requires our engagement but I also know that for many of you, the enemy likes to use these areas as causes for reproach. You don't know enough. You don't pray enough. God could never use you. So you're waiting, even after God has given you his spirit, until the day comes when you'll finally be spiritual enough. But ladies, that's a lie. And even though you know, you know that it's God's Spirit entering into your Bible study and your prayers that makes them effective, you're never going to get it until you experience it for yourself. So I say to you today, if you've never had the joy of opening your Bible and having the Holy Spirit show you something out of Scripture that you could never have seen for yourself, but it's so personal, it speaks exactly to right where you are, then you're missing out. You're missing the point. If you've never prayed for a friend and been flabbergasted because somehow one little phrase that just sort of came into your mind turned out to be something that spoke directly to them, something that only God could have known, well, then you're kind of missing out. This summer, I even have to say, God changed my perspective when a friend came up to me and asked me to pray for some pain that she was experiencing. So I did. And not just like, hey, would you go home and pray for me? But like, hey, would we sit down right here and pray about it? And as I started to pray for her, you know, I'm going, oh, I don't know what's going to happen. I was really kind of scared about it. and," And nothing happened. Okay. All right. And we moved on and we started praying about some other things. And all of a sudden, out of nowhere, bam, she goes, that's it. It's gone. And you know, in that moment, I suddenly got it. You see, God could have healed her at any moment, right? And he didn't let me pick the timing, clearly. But that moment was maybe the most humbling and liberating moment in my life because I finally got it. It wasn't about me. It wasn't about me figuring out the magic words to say. It had nothing to do with me. And let me tell you that spiritual pride goes completely out the window, when you experience the real thing. So where do we get off pointing to other people and saying, she's got something I don't? Ladies, I also know that some of us have been disciples our whole lives, learning from and following Jesus. We've done the studies. We've read the books. We've spent years incorporating what we've learned into our lives. We are fantastic disciples. But we've never quite seen ourselves as apostles, those who are authorized and sent forth with a message. Ladies, the message, the mission, is three words. Jesus is Lord. That's it. And that's not always a truth that we can convey in our own power. And I have less experience in this area, but I suspect it to be true. Once again, it is not about you. When we finally discover how to both show up and get out of the way, God himself will be the proof that Jesus is Lord as as he has his way in you. So as I close up, you'll notice that I gave you two of those feast days, right? Two of those festivals. The first one being the Feast of Trumpets. It includes Passover. The second one being, um, er, no, not the Feast of Trumpets, unleavened bread <laughs> that includes Passover. The second one being Pentecost. And the third one, we just so happen to be right smack dab in the middle of right now, today. The third festival se- season, you would say, starts out with the Feast of Trumpets. And the Feast of Trumpets is a day where they blow the shofar, that's the ram's horn, and it's supposed to be a day that awakens the soul to repentance. Interesting. Then they celebrate about ten days of just the days of awe, where they um, expect God to enter in and to to lead them in that, that act of repentance. It culminates in the holiest day of the Jewish calendar, Yom Kippur, which was just this last Saturday. And it's the new year, and it is the day when the priests would go and take the sacrifice and make atonement in the Holy of Holies for all of the people. And lastly, we're moving up into the Festival of Tabernacles, which I believe starts this Thursday. Um, Maybe it's, I think it's Thursday. And the Festival of Tabernacles is one where they... Remember when they were living in the wilderness, they build little temporary structures in their backyards, and they go out, and and they feast in there, and they spend time as a family in there. And they really, what it's all about is dwelling in God's glory. That is the culmination and the focus of this last festival, dwelling in God's glory. And there are so many parts of this that Christ has already fulfilled, right? Um, the whole thing about sacrifice and atonement being made on our behalf, but there are already so many things that we as Christians can say he's going to fulfill that too, right? The last trumpet sounding, judgment day, and eventually dwelling in his glory for eternity. We have so much to look forward to, but there's so much for us right here today where we're at. God, I pray for us that we would be a people that you fulfill all of these things in. We would be a people, um, just like in Passover, with its emphasis on cleansing and redemption, we would be a people who are cleansed and redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Just like in Pentecost, we would be a people who are overwhelmed by your abundant provision, who depend on you, God, For that, and who praise you, whose lives overflow in praise. And lastly, God, I pray that we would be a people who just love to dwell in your glory. God, as we go into our small groups today, as we go into our week, I pray, God, that your spirit would fill us, that we would find ways to um, get out of the way and just allow you to. To make a way for us. To make us into the proof that Jesus really is Lord. God, we ask for these things and we thank you because we know that you love to fulfill them. In Jesus' name, amen.